0: Good morning, I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves.
1: Good morning. Good Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I've got a good one for you this morning, this weekend. We are studying joy in conflict. Oh boy. Do you sense a little conflict around us here in this world? Absolutely. So God gives us some really good advice and helps us to work through that. Joy in conflict. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Those were the uh, verses that were just read. Rejoice in the Lord Always is the title of this series, a study through Philippians. And so thus far in this series, we have looked at joy in loneliness, joy in frustration, joy in suffering, and now we talk about joy in conflict. Next week, we'll talk about joy in stuck points. So if you got any stuck points, that would be a good weekend to attend. I think we all do. And so, uh, have you ever noticed, or have you ever wondered, what's going on with the coworker who wants to consistently pick a fight for nothing, or that relative who always wants to hatefully argue about politics, or that? those angry mobs pulling down historic statues and destroying people's property or that guy in your small group that likes to dominate the conversation and make it all about him or that spouse you can never do enough to please just real quick show of hands how many can relate to that you better not raise your hand see you raised your hand right away all the way to the back there because your wife is nowhere to be found she's sitting right back there in the Sound booth. You're in big trouble, man. How about this one? Or you and I, when we, when we get up tight or agitated, when people, things, and circumstances don't go our way. Take a look at the intro of your um, sermon notes. Conflict resolution skills are in short supply in our American culture. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. So does the Bible offer any help for our relational conflict, divisiveness, hatefulness, and alienation that we see in our country, communities, homes, marriages, and yes, yes, even in our churches? And the answer to that is yes. The joy in conflict is found in Christ and the unity that he brings. So here's my question for you. Do you have good conflict resolution skills? Would you be known as a person who is a reconciler or a peacemaker or a uniter? See, those are the characteristics that, that, that we should be identified with. That those Christians, oh my goodness, they are peacemakers. They're reconcilers. They're uniters. How's your relational skills? How's your conflict resolution skills? Do you have good conflict resolution skills? Are you a bridge builder or a wedge driver? If you don't have good conflict resolution skills, then you're not going to have healthy relationships. You see, to the extent to which two people in a relationship or any groups of people can bring up and resolve issues is a critical marker of the soundness of the relationship. So a critical marker of the soundness of the relationship is your ability within that relationship to bring up issues and work through those and, and come to a resolution to work through those issues. Now, I, I don't particularly like conflict. Anybody here like conflict? Just show of hands. Okay, I know who to avoid now. I just wanted to identify those that I need to stay away from because you like to stir it up, don't you? There's, there's two of them in here. We'll pray for them at the end of the service, okay? But there, there's nothing wrong with conflict, actually, and I don't like it, but I, I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of it because this is what I've learned through the years, that as I've gotten better at conflict resolution and worked through those things, it gives me opportunities for greater levels of intimacy and maturity, not only with God, but with those that I'm having conflict with. And it's, it's, it's worked wonders truly in my life if I've responded to it appropriately. So if I don't fight or flight, but I face the conflict, and this is what I've learned more than anything in conflict resolution, is that conflict doesn't put us, or relationships do not put us in conflict with others as much as, as, much as it puts us in conflict with our own sinful nature. Relationships don't put us in conflict with one another as much as it puts us in conflict with our own sinful nature, our pride. It reveals our pride and immaturity. So, here's the three questions we're looking at. You can see there on your notes. What are the motives of conflict resolution? What are the motives for being a peacemaker or a reconciler or a uniter? What are the marks? What are the characteristics? What does that look like in our life? What are the marks of conflict resolution? And then what are the means? What's the source? How can I become a person that's truly a peacemaker, uniter, reconciler? How I can walk through and not be afraid of conflict, but but learn how to speak the truth in love and face it and deal with it as it continues to help us to grow in, in intimacy and maturity with God and one another. Those are the questions. So let's take that first one here. What are the motives for conflict resolution? That's the answer is found in verses 1 and 2 of our text. Here's your first fill in the blank. So here's the first motive. A heart filled with pleasure in the eternal privileges we have in Christ. Does that sound familiar? It should because the first weekend I gave you a definition for joy. Joy is a buoyancy in the pleasures we find in the eternal privileges that are ours in Christ's Jesus. And so the motive for wanting to resolve conflict is that you have a heart filled with pleasure in the eternal privileges we have in Christ. That's verse one. Did you notice in verse one he says, so if there is any, now by the way, in the Greek, th- th- he's, he has no doubt. He's just challenging them to think deep enough about their own faith in Christ. Literally, you could actually say, since you have encouragement in Christ, comfort from his love, any participation with the spirit. The word participation means intimacy. It's, it's the word koinonia or fellowship, intimacy with the spirit, and affection and sympathy. He's just saying, since we have these things, then make my joy complete by being, and he talks about unity, by being like-minded, having one love, and then he goes on from there. And so, so he's actually telling us, he's giving us just a short list of the eternal privileges that we have that we can find deep pleasure in. Now, this is the most important and most loved part of my day, and that is basking, basking in the reality of the encouragement of Christ, the comfort of his love. There's nothing like it. The participation of the Holy Spirit that I interact with, with the creator of the universe, he indwells me, and he pours into my heart affection, deep affection and sympathy. He not only loves me, but he really, really cares about me. And he cares about you. That's the most important thing that I do every day that prepares me to deal with the conflict around me. And that's something that we, we must do. And that's why he starts with this verse 1. There is nothing quite like this. Psalm 84.10 Better is one day in your courts than what? Thousand elsewhere. You hear what he's saying? That's, that's verse one. Encouragement of Christ, comfort of his love, fellowship with the Holy Spirit, sympathy, affection from God. So that's, that's really the first motive. In fact, this is what I also want to say along. Uh, to really understand what Paul is doing here, and this is very typical of what the gospel is about. The riches of our Christian faith always precede our responsibility. Let me say that again. The wealth of our Christian faith always precedes our walk. So, we don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his blessing, therefore we obey him. So he's going to talk about unity. He's going to talk about uh, um, humility. He's going to talk about pride here. But before he does that, that's our walk, he talks about our wealth. Because it's out of our wealth that we're able to do our walk. We're able to be the kind of people that God has called us to be. So conflict resolution begins with me filling my heart with the pleasures of my eternal privileges in Christ. Are you good at that? Do you do that daily? Do you revel in the riches of his grace? That would be healthy Christianity. Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're justified by faith, we have peace with God, and from that peace with God, we have numerous, innumerable Eternal blessings, are privileges that we can find deep pleasure in. Now here's the next one. It goes off of that first one. Here's the next motive. Our vital union and communion with Christ, that's what I just talked about, our vital union and communion with Christ will produce a passion for unity. And so look at verse 2. So he, so he gives us these privileges that we have in Christ that we are to bask in. And then he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and one mind. Now, if you were to look at the life of Christ in moments before he was going to hang on the cross, he prayed a prayer. It's found in John chapter 17. It's an amazing prayer, it's a spiritually and theologically deep prayer. I mean, it's a prayer that it was, it, you could really see more than ever the heart of Jesus. And in that prayer, he prays for the church, and he also prays for you and I. We're mentioned in that prayer. It's John chapter 17. And in that prayer, the, the prayer is basically about two topics. It's about intimacy with God and unity with one another. And really what he's saying is that if you understand this intimacy with God, you're going to have unity. You're going to long for unity. In fact, you're going to have a passion for unity. That's, that's what we're getting here from the Apostle Paul. He says, make my joy complete. He has joy in Jesus, but unity completes his joy. He's just saying, this is my passion. I have a passion not only for Christ, but to have unity within the body of Christ. Now, we need to talk a little bit about unity. Unity by itself is not the ultimate goal. You guys know that. You can have thieves united around the goal of stealing from others. You can have a church united around the goal of false doctrine. But notice what he says in verse 2. Let's dissect that verse because he's talking about unity. So how is he defining unity here for us? I think he does a beautiful job. In verse verse 2 he says, being of the same mind. And notice he finishes verse 2 with one mind of one mind. So those are one and the same. They're pretty closely related. And what he's talking about here, he's talking about doctrine. That We have to have a biblical worldview. We need to be united around what the Bible teaches about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit. So, so we need unity around the truth. But then he says same love. The word love here is agape. It's that unconditional love. It's the God kind of love. It's a commitment To be there no matter what. So, as we unify around the truth, he's saying in that context, there needs to be a love that is committed to one another, that you'll be there no matter what goes on, no matter what kind of conflict you face. But he doesn't stop there, he kind of combines the two together. So, you you got doctrine, you got love, and then he says, in full accord. That word is an interesting word, it means one soul, united. In deep affections for one another. So, what does that mean to be one soul? One soul. So, we would be united around truth and love, and yet our relationships would be so, so deep and so strong that we'd be like one soul. What does that mean? That means that when you grieve, I grieve. It affects me as much as it affects you, whatever you're going through. That means that when you rejoice and you're celebrating, I celebrate with you, almost as if it, it happened to me, too. That's one soul where you're so connected relationally. That's what he's talking about. And so so we could summarize it like this. It is not unity at the expense of truth, but unity around the truth filled with love and deep affection for one another. The truth would be the essentials of the Christian faith as opposed to the non-essentials of the Christian faith. How many are familiar with what I'm saying there, that there's a difference between essentials of the Christian faith and non-essentials? This is what I find interesting, that most people fight over and, and divide over the non essentials. It's just crazy. And so, so if you want to pick a fight with me, if we have conflict, the first thing I'm going to ask, is that essential, Christian doctrine or non essential? If it's not essential, then we can debate it, but we're not going to divide over it. But in the essential doctrine, we will divide over. We had a guy a number of years ago that came into the church and wanted to lead a small group and after we did a little bit more vetting of him, we found out that he didn't believe in the Trinity. We go, oh, guess what? You can't lead a small group here because the triune God is a part of the doctrine that we embrace and it's really, really important to us. And so he went his way. He said, no, but I don't believe in the Trinity and whatever. And I says, okay, we're sorry. We love you. We really hope that you'd hang out with us for a while and maybe understand what the Bible actually teaches about that topic, but that's, that's, that happens. And so there has to, truth is important, love is really important, being one soul with each other, really caring about each other, and that's what he's talking about here. And so how can we have this unity? Well, let me, let me walk you through this, how this works out. In our life, we have different components that make up our identity. There are different things that are true about you, but they are not equally important. For instance, I like football and I'm a husband. And for most people, you know, by far, football is by far more important to me than uh, than basketball. Uh, you thought I was going to say something else: I don't dare go there. I hope football does kick off, you know, here in August. I'm, I'm hoping for it, but I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. But, uh, but the point is, the point uh, here is that uh, we have different components that make up our identity, and they're not all equally important. And uh, both of those are true, but both of those are not equally important. I like football, and I'm a husband. You see, my values and priorities and the ways I spend my time are more affected by me being a husband than my enjoyment of football. That makes sense, doesn't it? So I make decisions in my life based on the priority I give to the various parts of my identity, and you do the same. And so... Christians can come together even in the midst of significant differences and have unity because our highest priority is our vital union and communion with Jesus Christ. Helping people to see him more clearly and savor him more deeply and show him more contagiously. That's our heart. That's what we want more than than anything. So let me give you a couple examples of what this looks looks like as we work it out in our life. Let's say that you are a Christian and you identify your identity is on one side of the political spectrum. If you are unable to love, serve, respect, and treat with dignity other people who also claim to be Christians but are on the other side of the political spectrum, then it means that your political identity has become more core and fundamental than your identity in Christ. That's called idolatry, by the way. Here's another example. This, this hits home maybe even a little bit more. Let's say that you are a Christian and you think we shouldn't be wearing masks for any number of reasons. There's a lot of reasons out there. I've heard a lot of reasons why people think that we shouldn't be wearing masks. If you are unable to love, serve, respect, and treat with dignity other people who also claim to be a Christian but think we should all be wearing masks, then it means that you're you're not wearing a mask is more important to you than your love and service to your brother and sister in Christ. That's what it's saying. And, and you don't understand your Christian liberty and where the boundaries are. And you, you, are, you are clueless when it comes to 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 and even Romans 14. And what often happens, and I've seen this, is where people in these conflicts, they're really revealing their pride and their immaturity, so so, let me level with you. I love you guys. But, but don't, don't miss the big E on the eye chart. Does that make sense? It's like a big E. We, I'm saying we're missing it. To know Christ and to make him known regardless of whether we wear a mask or don't wear a mask. That's, that's really superficial to be quite honest with you. I didn't like wearing a mask at the beginning. I, Costco was, you know, enforcing. And I said, well, I'll never go to Costco. Yeah. Well, guess what? I ended up going to Costco. And I wore a mask. Whatever. And I'd pull it down so I wouldn't suffocate under this from time to time just to, you know. And so, uh, but, but, I mean, hey, what's, what's the big deal? And I know people are making it a big deal. I understand. I'm not here to pick a fight. But I'm just saying, don't miss the big E on the I-chart. Our lives are about giving glory to him. Can you give glory to God whether you wear a mask or don't wear a mask and even in your conflict with one another as it relates to that? And, uh, and this is what I want you to understand more than anything, is that people are hurting in our church and out there. And if we miss this opportunity because we're debating about whether we should wear a mask or not wear a mask or, or whatever, or the government's overreach or whatever, we're gonna miss out on ministering to people because people are desperate for the love and joy and peace that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And um, my wife... Was shopping just this last week. She told me she was in the, at one of the grocery stores, and she came across somebody that attends Desert Breeze, and they didn't kind of recognize each other because they had the mask on. And so when my wife pulled the kind of the mask down, and she, then she pulled her mask down, they recognized each other, and this woman poured her heart out to my wife about the struggles that she's had in the last year. She said this. She said, "I lost my mom. I, I, I lost my mom a year ago." And at the beginning of this COVID crisis, I lost my, get, my dad to COVID-19. And my world is rocked. I need hope. She doesn't care whether people want masks or don't want masks. She needs hope. That's what most people need more than anything. My mom has lost four friends to covid My uncle almost died to it. So if you think it's a big fraud, people are dying from this. It's a serious issue, regardless of what you might think. I know people close to me that have passed away from this. My buddy, he's the best man in my uh, wedding, nearly died, had to go to the hospital from COVID. And so I'm just saying, man, don't miss the big E on the I-chart it's about Christ and Him crucified and who He is and what He's done for us. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here for, for many of you. You guys are like, yeah. yeah, right on. That's what we want. We want to see Christ more clearly. I had a, a, a friend, a brother yesterday tell me, uh, he said, man, if, if we can't get through this wearing mask or not wearing masks, people are stumbling over that. What are we going to do when it really gets difficult? like real church persecution, persecution of the church. This is a speed bump compared to having the church really being persecuted. And so... We need to focus, we need to refocus, we need to keep our focus on Christ and that's that's certainly part of that unity that Christ wants to do in our lives. Paul is saying that the only way you are going to have this kind of unity is to make your vital union and communion with Christ your highest priority. Christ has to be your highest priority. So does that mean you're gonna agree with everyone politically or in any other area of life? no, no. You may vigorously oppose their policies and ideologies, but you do it with love and honor and respect. So what does that look like in our life? What would be a good analogy for this? Well, it does not look like uniformity or sameness, where we all act the same and treat each other, you know, we act the same and talk the same and... And we, we have no differences whatsoever. That's not what it means. It's not, it's not uniformity or sameness. But this is what it looks like. Here's an analogy. I think it's a beautiful analogy of what it should look like within the church. It looks like an orchestra where there is unity within diversity. My wife and I went to Symphony Hall over the holidays of this last year to the Symphony Hall Ballet and Orchestra, the Nutcracker. It was absolutely Beautiful. It was amazing. And and when many different instruments come together to play a single piece of music, there is an incredible beauty that emerges. Because of the differences, something stunningly beautiful comes from their performance. And so the unity God calls us to depends on differences. So within our diversity, we come together with a unified purpose of love and truth around the person and work of Jesus Christ and produce something in the world that is stunningly beautiful and sometimes even perplexing as the world looks on and watches us disagree, we debate but we don't divide and we love each other like crazy. See, that's the heart of our Savior. That's what he was praying for in John chapter 17. And that comes out of intimacy with Christ. So that is why we need racial differences and socioeconomic differences and age differences and education differences in the church. We don't flatten them. We celebrate them. So the motives, the pleasure in our eternal privileges, producing a passion for unity. Okay, I spent a lot of time on that because I really wanted you to understand unity. Let's move on to the next one. What are the marks of conflict resolution? This is found in verses 3 and 4. Here's your next two fill-in-the-blanks. So the marks are humility as opposed to pride. And he deals with that in, um, in verse 3. Take a look at verse 3 he says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit now we need to uh, we need to define these words so that we understand what these words are about the word selfish ambition the greek means to a desire to promote yourself a desire to promote yourself all of your energies all of your resources all of all of your time is spent on promoting and advancing self even at the expense of others so selfishness or self-centeredness makes everything a means to an end. Everything in their life. People and things, and it's all about them. That's that's the selfish ambition. But he uses the word conceit, and I think the reason why we would make everything about us, and that's the fallen condition, is because we have conceit. The word conceit is an interesting word. track with me here. You've got to get this because I'm going to use part of this word later on in the text. It's going to show up. But conceit, the Greek word is kino doxia. Kino means empty. Doxa or doxa means glory. So empty of glory we are self-promoting in direct proportion to the fact that we are empty of glory. We're glory empty it means to be starved for respect, honor, validation, approval and significance. It is it is a cosmic insecurity of thinking and feeling that I don't matter or count. It's an inconsolable human longing that nothing in creation can satisfy only the creator. And that creates this self-promotion. And so, this is why your coworker wants to fight, your relative wants to argue politics, lawless mobs want to destroy, the guy in your small group talks too much, your spouse is hard to please, and you and I get uptight when circumstances don't go our way. See, this also explains bullying on the playground, bombs on the battleground, inner city crimes international terrorism, polarization in politics, fighting in marriage, family, churches, and organizations. So, so follow me here. This is important. If the cause of conflict is pride, then what is the cure? The second part of verse 3. He, he gives us the cure right there. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So if the cause of conflict is inner emptiness then humility must mean inner fullness, inner fullness. You see, we were made to stand in the presence of God and look our our great God in the face and to receive all of the acceptance, security, and significance we would ever need. We were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. And to look into the face of our maker, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and to receive all the acceptance and security and significance we would ever need. But we believed the lie. We thought he was holding out on us, and we turned away from him. And that spiritual alienation left us instantaneously, psychologically alienated. This inconsolable longing in our heart to fill that up it's called unbelief, pride, and then it moves to idolatry, where we try to try to replace God in some way. But pride is is right in the middle of that. Genesis 2, 25, five three and Genesis three seven through eight talks about that. This is the fallen human condition of an internal conflict that causes external conflict. All of our conflict externally comes from internal conflict. That's what it tells us in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So if selfish ambition and conceit, inner emptiness is valuing self above others, that's pride. Humility, inner fullness, is valuing others above self. That's what he says here in verse 3b. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, See, the gospel makes you others directed because you already have your treasure in Christ. We have fullness in Christ. Do you understand what he's saying here? So he starts off with verse one, encouragement in Christ and comfort of his love and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness, do you understand what we have in him that fills us up and makes us us concerned about others because we don't need to be concerned about ourselves. We want others to experience what we're experiencing, to know what we know. And that's... That's what he's getting at. That's what he wants us to understand. The gospel makes us others directed because you already have your treasure in Christ. That's why when you meet a humble person, and by the way, there aren't many of us around. Okay, just to see if you're awake. You guys got that. I just disqualified myself from the group of humble folks, okay? Okay. And in fact, I've had a few people tell me that before. They say, well, I'm really a humble person. Ah, no, you're not. That just disqualified you, dude. Now, if you had have told me that you really struggle with pride, okay, then you're on the track to some humility. But the very fact that you told me you were humble, ah, wrong. So, yeah, I, I struggle with this, and so I, I... I I certainly couldn't admit that I'm a humble person. I can be a very proud person. I I understand that and I see that. I need this message more than most of you need it, okay? I'm just telling you, I'm the first in line. That's why he's got me up here teaching it, okay? (laughs) I got a front row seat here as God continues to work in my life. But that's why when you meet a humble person, you will notice three things. Here's three things that you'll notice. That they are totally dependent upon God. (laughs) <laughs> they have such a deep satisfaction in God. They're just rejoicing in God. Rejoicing in the Lord always? Yeah, that's, that's a humble person. They just, they're just celebrating all that they have in, in God. They're totally dependent upon God. They're exceptionally content. There's no bitterness, no complaining, no worry in them. And the third thing is that they're incredibly interested in others. They give dignity, honor, respect to others regardless of race, social status, age, education or politics, it doesn't matter. So, so, so a humble person is totally dependent upon God, exceptionally content, and incredibly interested in others. And uh, humility isn't thinking less of yourself but it's thinking of yourself less, it is a blessed self-forgetfulness because of the fullness that you have in Christ. So marks of conflict resolution, humility as opposed to pride, and that humility is, here's the next two fill-in-the-blanks, selflessness as opposed to selfishness. Selflessness as opposed to selfishness. That's based on verse uh, verses 3b to 4, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So he, he talks about that in, in 3b, but in verse 4 he explains what that means. So what does that mean to for others to be more significant than ourselves. Well, verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others. So certainly you have interests, you have needs. And it's okay to look after those needs and interest. But you need to not only look after your own needs and interests, but also the needs and interests of others is what he's saying. So selflessness is your interest before mine selfishness is my interest before yours. My interests before yours. So I think what he wants us to understand is communicate your needs, your interest, but make their needs more important. Now, can you imagine what kind of relationship that would be if, if you had two people that they really communicated their needs and their interests, but at the same time they made the other person's needs and interests more important than their own? That would be a great relationship. But if it's, if it's only one way, then that's exploitation and abuse. And that one that's giving in all the time needs to, to uh, speak the truth in love. True love forgives the most but condones the least. And so it's not ever loving to let someone sin against you. And so you're going to challenge them to do what you're doing, to think of the others, and you're going to challenge that person. And in that, as you work through, that's obvious conflict, and so you work through that. And so humility is an attitude of giving value, honor, and dignity to others, wanting and seeking God's very best for them. You really want the very best for them. No matter how angry they make you, no no matter how much they've attacked you, you want the very best for them. You're going to treat them, if you treat them like God has treated you in Christ Jesus, the rest will follow. You'll be able to respond and work through conflict. Because you can't help but want to respond to them the way that Christ has treated you and loved you and pursued you and reconciled you back to himself through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So humility is an attitude of giving value, honor, and dignity to others, wanting and seeking God's very best for them. This invitation to a life of humility is not an invitation to a morbid or dour life. It is an invitation to the most glorious life that a person can live. So when, I, when you think of humility, this is what I want you to think about. Think of fullness in Christ. Fullness in Christ. Humility, fullness in Christ. So let me go through some statements here to make it real applicable for our lives. This is what this looks like in our lives. There's too many here for you to write down, but you'll get the overall idea. And if one of them pops out to you, then uh, maybe you just need to focus on that one in particular. But I've got 12 here. Let me walk through this. Think of fullness of Christ, humility. Humility frees us from feeling threatened or intimidated by the successes of others. Humility frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves. Humility frees us from success inflating us or failure deflating us. Humility frees us from being dependent on the smiles and approval of others. Humility frees us from always having to be right and always have to have the last word. Ow. I mean, I, I struggled with that for years. Humility frees us to confess our faults, acknowledge our weaknesses, and to even receive criticism. Humility frees us to see our blind spots and be thankful when others point out our blind spots. To be thankful that others point out your blind spots. Praise God, thank you for telling me that. Humility frees us from always needing to show off by saying, here's what I know, or who I am, or what I have. Humility frees us from entitlement and self importance and feeling the world owes us something. Humility frees us to not have to cover our insecurities with meanness and scornfulness toward others. Did you know people that are mean and scornful, they're covering up insecurities? You know that. Humility frees us to be flexible in matters of, of preference, non-essential doctrine, and speaks the truth in love in matters of principle, essential doctrine. Humility frees us from being preoccupied with how we look, how we feel, how people treat us, or what people think about us. You don't have that self-consciousness, that preoccupi- uh, preoccupation with self, Humility frees us to count others more significant than ourselves and to look not only to our own interests but to the interest of others. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a community where all of the members lived like that? That's what God wants for us. That's his heart for us. So motives, pleasure and eternal privileges producing a passion for unity marks humility as opposed to pride and self as opposed to selfishness. So what are the means? How do we get there? How do we get to this place where we, we're able to resolve conflict? We're uniters, we're peacemakers, we're reconcilers because God has called us to that ministry. We've been called to the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter five. So how, how, do, we, how do we get there? Verses five through 11 gives us the answer to that. Verses 5-11 through is an amazingly famous passage in the Bible about the incarnation of Christ. It's a magnificent sweeping hymn, a song of praise to the beauty and the greatness of who Jesus is and what he has done. Now my question for you is why would Paul give this sudden theological discourse in the middle of this very practical teaching on conflict and humility in the church? Why would he do that? Because the doctrine of the incarnation, God becoming man, is not only the ultimate example of conflict resolution, but it's also the means for us to be those that that have great skills in conflict resolution. So, so let me just remind you very quickly where we've been, where we're going here. So what is the cause of conflict? It's our pride. What is the cure to our conflict? Humility. How do we move from pride to humility? Beholding the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's what transforms our hearts. That's what transforms our lives. Notice what he says. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So it is a mindset of humility. Now now you need to know that humility is not found by direct pursuit. I'm not giving you a list of things that you need to do to become more humble, because when you get to the end of the list, you won't be more humble. You'll be more proud because you will have hit all the things on the list and you'll be going around telling people how humble you are. And that will disqualify you. So it's not found by direct pursuit, but it becomes a, it's, comes as a byproduct of being captivated by those things that are beautiful and glorious. Humility is not found by direct pursuit but is a byproduct of being in the presence of breathtaking beauty and captivating glory. You know when you are in the presence of great beauty and glory because you stop thinking about yourself. I mean, that's why we go to great vacation spots. That's why we go to great vacation spots. We go to behold something beautiful and are in some ways healed and changed. I mean, if you, if you ever go to the beach, I love going to the beach, you stand there on the edge of the beach there, watch those waves break on the shore, and you look out across the vastness of that, oh my goodness. There's those moments where it's just breathtaking. It's beautiful. Or maybe you like going to the mountains. You've had those experiences. You watch the sun rising over the mountains. You go, oh, this is amazing. You're not thinking about yourself at that moment. You're captivated by the beauty and the glory. You are transfixed. Your attention and affections are captivated. And there's nothing that will liberate us from our prisons of pride like experiences of glory and beauty. So what is the greatest beauty and glory that if you gaze upon it, it will actually produce real and lasting humility in your life? I need to give you a quick correction on your notes there. It's not Romans 3.18, it's 2 Corinthians 3.18. Let me summarize that verse. This verse has meant a lot to me through the years. It's helped me out tremendously with my pride. And this is what it basically says. It is in the beholding of the glory of God we become whole. How many want to become whole? I do. Whole, holiness, happy in every way. Yeah, and he says, you know how that is accomplished? By beholding to where the glory and the beauty of Christ gets a hold of your heart and it transforms you. And you need to have moments every day, every week, where you are beholding. Are you good at beholding the beauty and the glory of Christ? Because that will change you. That will transform you. And so that's what I want us to do right now. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion here this morning. I've got five more fill in the blanks for you. We're going to walk through what Paul says here as it relates to to Christ. And we're just going to take out some time to behold. Behold his beauty and his glory. Think of the glory of his deity. That's your next fill in the blank. Verse five Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse six Who, though he was in the form of God, he was fully God. He is fully God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you know what kind of glory and beauty Jesus had? The answer is no, you don't. Neither do I. I can tell you this, that he was beautiful beyond bearing. I can tell you this, he was glorious beyond our comprehension. So when you see this great landscape or the sun rising over the mountains and you're captivated by that beauty and glory, that's a dim glimpse of who Christ is. It's a gift from God and a pointer back to him because he is so much more glorious and beautiful. And that's what he's wanting us to understand here. He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then think... Think of the humility of his birth, verse 7b, but emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men. So this is where we have this hypostatic union of Christ, deep theological truth. Jesus is fully God, fully man. And um, it's important to, to know that. That's an important biblical truth. I don't fully understand it. It's beyond our comprehension. But this is what the Bible teaches and notice he uses the word emptied. that's the Greek word kino, does that sound familiar? It's the same as in verse three, kinodoxia. we are empty of glory, Christ voluntarily emptied himself, not of his deity, there's false teaching in our culture that says he emptied himself of his deity, no he did not. He emptied himself of his glory. There's a major difference between the two. And he did that voluntarily. Christ voluntarily emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his glory. What is glory? Weight, significance, importance. He wasn't born in a palace in Jerusalem, but in a stable in Bethlehem. He who built the starry skies was born in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. If there was anyone who deserved a more grand entrance, it was Christ. Think of the humility of his life. Verse 7a. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus deserved deserved all of the glory of the universe, and yet he walked in perfect humility. A man who was never too busy for anyone. A man willing to associate with anyone. A man who was not always flattering to build up his reputation. Jesus at the same time could speak truth to kings and have dinner with outcasts. Isaiah 53, 2 says, he had no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. Think of the humility of his death, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Now, do you see... What Paul is getting across here, he's saying here God, God became a man, but not just any man, he became a servant. Not just any servant, he died. Not just any death, he died on the cross for you and I. How far did God go to reconcile us back to himself? He sent his son from heaven to earth to rescue us. Dying on a cross was not only terribly painful, but it was also filled with unbearable shame. It was reserved for the worst criminals. And Christ takes the sin of the world upon himself and dies in the place of others. So what is the ultimate act of humility? Wouldn't it be to lay down your life for someone else? There is nothing more perfect and beautiful than the humility of sacrificial love for the good of someone else. Isaiah 52, 14 says, many were astonished at him because on the cross, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Semblance, He was beyond, he didn't even seem as though he was even human because he was so beaten and bloody and bludgeoned our Savior for you and I. And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46 he was completely ignored, he embraced our worst nightmare to be eternally and completely ignored by God in hell for you and I, that's, that is hell. We turned away from God and we deserve God to turn away from us. On the cross, Jesus Christ got what we deserve so that when we repent and believe in him, we get what he deserves, a perfect righteousness before the Father. All of the acceptance and security and significance we'll ever need for all eternity so that we will never, ever have to be glory hungry again if we will keep coming back to him and filling our hearts with him. Think of the glory of his exaltation, verses nine through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus didn't come with a sword in his hand but to have nails driven into his hands. In his first coming, he came to bear our judgment. In his second coming, he will Bring judgment with a sword in his hands. Revelation chapter one. So I plead with you. Listen to me. I plead with you. Bow to the lordship of Jesus now for bearing your sin. Or one of these days you will bow to him and proclaim him as Lord as he brings judgment upon you. There's no other way. It's only through Jesus. Give your life to him. Acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. Believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins. And acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior. Live your life for him. Oh my goodness. He will fill you up. Look at the last statement on your notes. Here's a summary statement. You and I are desperate to fill ourselves with glory, but we end up empty. Jesus Christ emptied himself of glory so that we could be full. And because we have fullness in Christ, we can empty, we can humble ourselves so that others can be full in him. Let's pray. So Father God, we confess our sin of pride that leads to conflict and divisiveness and and disunity in our homes, our community, and in our church. Motivate us through the pleasures we find and the eternal privileges we have in Christ, producing in us a passion for unity, Not a unity at the expense of truth, but a unity around the truth filled with love and deep affection for one another. May our lives be more and more characterized by humility as opposed to pride, selflessness as opposed to selfishness. May this humility produce in us an attitude of giving value, honor, and dignity to others, wanting and seeking God's very best for them, even if we totally disagree with them. Teach us how to daily behold the beauty and the glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ, bringing wholeness, wholeness to our lives, we pray. In Jesus' beautiful and glorious name, and everyone said amen. Amen. So uh, parents, if you have kids, I would encourage you uh, to use your own discretion if you want your kids to take communion. This might be a good time. And feel free to talk to them during this time uh, and explain what communion is, and it'd be great for you to take communion as a family. Hang on to those double cups. In a few minutes, I will walk us through the communion process. tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of, of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who drinks or eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself." I forgot to, at the beginning, acknowledge that there are those that are watching on YouTube Live right now, and you could probably hit the pause button on that and go and get some elements for yourself, crackers and juice, and we would love for you to join us. We thank you for being there. But what does that mean to do this in an unworthy manner? It means this, ritualistically, just kind of going through the motions, indifferently, with an unrepentant heart, unforgiveness and bitterness, or any other ungodly attitude. Let's just take a moment, let God search your heart, just for a moment. Father, we do not want to do this in an unworthy manner. We want to honor you. We want to glorify you. We want to be behold the beauty and the glory of our Savior Jesus. You told us in First John one eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But in First First John one nine, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bring cleansing, we pray. In Jesus' name. This is what you need to keep in mind as we take communion here. There is no sin or suffering. There's no sin or suffering that is a match for God's redeeming, restoring grace. Whatever you're going through, come to the cross. Come to Jesus. Give him your life. He's in the business of redeeming and restoring and reconciling us back to the Father. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. So next weekend, we're gonna talk about joy and stuck points, and I will share with you my stuck points. And if you want, I will share with you my wife's stuck points also, okay? And so uh, I probably won't now that I said that. But that's what we're gonna talk about next week. Here's my blessing for you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, and everyone said Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.